This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, reach out to us, please, at podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know that May 24th was uh, Aviation Maintenance Technician Day, right? I didn't know that. We all missed it. We had donuts, but not on purpose. Do we get a major award? Are you supposed to? No. Do we get get mimosas or something on... On, uh, I think next year we should put a, um, an alarm on the calendar. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just make sure we don't miss that. That sounds like it sounds important to celebrate. See, I want, you know, I have the certificate, a pilot certificate. I'm, I'm one of those weirdos. I don't have a pilot's license. I have a pilot certificate. And I want my mechanic certificate to have Charles Taylor on it, not the Wright brothers. That yeah. way I can have one with the Wright brothers and one with Charles Taylor. I think that just makes perfect sense. Why don't we orchestrate a, a, a celebration next year on AMT Day at, at Kitty Hawk? We'll all fly in there. I think that'd be awesome. Okay. How do we do that? Would the parts oh. department uh, work with us on that? You know, it's well, an open I mean, public there's a, airport. There's, <laughs> there's a public airport there, although you're not yeah. allowed to stay out not overnight. Not the field. Not on the field. See, he's there, there's brass. another public airport that's fairly close that you can stay overnight. Yeah, Dare they, County. Yeah. Wait a minute, though. Would we want to do it there or in Dayton? Because that's where Charles Taylor was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That might that's be true. easier and is more centrally located. More centrally located. Yeah, I, I, it was kind of gutsy that those guys went to Kitty Hawk with that airplane, didn't bring Charlie with him. Didn't bring him with him. <laughs> <laughs> no ground and crew. That, very and, confident. Mm. And they and they and they cracked it up. They had her do some repairs, field they repairs, duct tape, and, they, yeah. and they didn't and they didn't have Charles with it. Yeah, but they were bicycle guys. They knew. Yeah, what no, they were doing. they're they're sharp guys, no doubt. <laughs> I think that'd be a lot of fun. Dayton's got a good museum. They oh yes. Yeah. You're saying you're saying they you're saying they brought duct tape. Did I hear that? They must have brought duct tape. Yeah, only the highest quality. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have duct tape back then? I don't know. I hope not. They did. That was. They didn't have air conditioning, did they? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you got me. <laughs> you know, I can oh, see no. if we don't follow this up, there's going to be some big event in Dayton on May 24th next year, mm-hmm. and they're all going to be standing around wondering why we're not there. 
It's a long time from now. We'll see. Our first question is from Sarah, who's trying to trust her airplane. Go ahead, Sarah. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for taking my question. I look forward to your show coming out every month, and I am honored to be a part of it. A few years ago, I purchased a 1959 Cessna 175 with a Lycoming 0360 engine and a constant speed prop. I got the aircraft for a really good price, in part thanks to the engine being higher time, 1,500 hours, and also in part because the logbooks were lost in the early 2000s. Before completing the purchase, I was able to track down the owner who had it for the majority of its life prior to the logbooks going missing, and he verified the aircraft's history in pretty general terms for me. Over the course of the last two annual inspections, my IA has repeatedly had positive things to say about the condition of the aircraft, which has added to my confidence in the purchase. In 2019, with the help of my A&P IA, I installed a GPI EDM 900 and began sending oil samples out for analysis. So far, everything is indicating that the power plant is in really excellent health. However, I feel like there's still a lot of unknowns, and being the type A worrier that I am, not to mention someone who enjoys turning wrenches, it is really hard to resist the urge to maintain this airplane to death. So my question is this. What systems would be worth replacing or overhauling at a low risk of causing myself a maintenance-induced failure? For example, since I don't know their time in service, should I arrange for a magneto IRAN or overhaul? Should I replace all the flight control cables and pulleys? What other critical parts would you recommend someone overhaul or replace for the sake of establishing a known history of an aircraft that doesn't have complete maintenance records? Okay, so I have to start with this, and this is... I hate it for Colleen because, yeah, because you're the one that was doing the uh, routine inspections of your gear motor yeah. on the RG because you just knew that was going to be better. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> I'll just start with this. Don't look for reasons to do work on the airplane. Look for reasons to not do work on the airplane. That's, I mean, not like just ignore it. I'm not saying that, but find ways to prove that there's a reason not to do that. I, I'm just so impressed that Sarah used the term maintenance-induced failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I have read your book, so, so this is things uh, that you guys in your podcast. And those apparently. We can tell. We can tell. Well, we, we don't want her to, to be messing with her control cables, right? No. No, no. Inspect no. them. Yes, absolutely. Oh, of course, inspect them. them. Yeah. But not, don't replace them it, unless, you, unless, unless you're based in Australia. Oh, then you have to. <laughs> then you have to. They have some silly rule down there. First of all, that would be a horrible, horrible task to do, to yes. replace all the police. Yeah. I and can so, tell you. Yeah, I've never done it. I've had my plane for 30 years, and I've looked at them, but I've and I've greased them, but I've never had to replace or even tighten any of the control cables. Lubricate them, though. Yeah, lubricate. Because every time they bend, all those strands work against each other. So yeah. lubrication on the cable itself is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one thing you mentioned that you definitely sh- should do is is regular magneto irons, for sure. Magnetos are one of those exception cases that you can't really maintain on condition because there's no way of determining condition without taking the whole thing apart. So people are tempted to do a mag drop and use, I mean, sorry, do a mag check and use that as an on condition inspection, but there's a lot more that could go wrong very quickly that the mag drop can't catch. Yeah. Plus the mags have 
what I call consumables, you know, things like carbon brushes and stuff that, that wear out. So do you not know the time and service on the mags or time since the, since the last I ran because the logbooks are missing? Correct. I don't know the time and service. I replaced the left magneto with a Surefly electronic ignition at last annual. It's been great. That was a good move. And I wish you could replace the other one. And hopefully the FAA will eventually come around to allowing that because the sooner we get rid of tractor mags, the better as soon as, as far as I'm concerned. I'm waiting to put a second Surefly on my airplane as well. But since you don't know how much time is on, on the mag, you probably have to assume that it's over 500 hours. And so you probably should have, have an IRAN done. Okay, great, great. Do you have, a, do you have a bore scope? I don't yet. Oh, no, but no, no, uh, no. you could give me an excuse to purchase one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right now. Oh, yeah. This is I, it. You would love it. I can tell already. Yeah. Oh no. So no, we have to we have to base this on. I mean, she's all about safety, so we we don't want to just tell her she's going to love it. That's like buying a purse or something. We we want an excuse like whoa, this whoa, is whoa. a safety thing. Was that a woman thing? That were no, you no, to- no, no, no. Okay. Yeah, because Colleen, I, I don't know about Please. you, but I don't buy purses for fun. I go. Back I have a backpack. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I have I have three sisters, mm-hmm. so you know I'm just basing my comment on that. Please don't send oh nasty gram emails. <laughs> I was just not at all. Yeah. So yeah, go buy one because this is what you want to monitor the condition of the cylinders on your Lycoming engine so that you can have, let's see, we start out with trusting the airplane. So this is a great way to be able to trust the airplane, learn about borescoping the the valves, not only the face of the valves, but the stems of the valves, cylinder wall condition, looking for lateral marks from piston pin plugs or piston rings that may have broken. They'll put little scratch marks on there. So yeah, that's a, it's an absolute must. 200 bucks. Go spend it. Happily. Yeah. What uh, what boroscopes would you recommend for somebody who is, you know, doing preventative maintenance on their aircraft and hoping to eventually get their AMP, but, you know, doesn't want to spend $1,200? What is that sort of $200 price point boroscope you might suggest? We normally recommend for cylinder inspection, something called the Vividia Ablescope VA400. It used to be 200 bucks. It's now 250 bucks. They raised the price, but they also increased the resolution. And it's um, for other things other than cylinders, sometimes a flexible borescope is useful, but for cylinder inspection, a rigid one is, is really the best bet. And for 250 bucks, you can't go wrong. Yeah, it has a little tip that turns around and looks back at the valve. So it's, it's rigid, but it turns. So it's perfect for cylinders. If you could only do two things... The two things would be to borescope the cylinders regularly and to meticulously inspect the oil filter contents. Yep. Yep. So the the bottom line here is don't attack your airplane with tools because, as you said, you could induce secondary failures. Don't ask me how I know this. And we call that maintaining on condition. Basically, you use the indicators from the aircraft itself to determine when it needs maintenance. But don't just take it out of service on a schedule except for maybe the mags, because there's things that can go wrong in the mags that you can't see or, or detect. But when, when, when we maintain stuff on condition, it means that we are committing ourselves to do the very best we can to determine condition. So you need to use all of these tools for inspection, and preferably they're all non-invasive. That They don't require taking very much apart. The borescope requires taking the top spark plug out, which you probably wouldn't be doing anyway, 
the oil filter inspection obviously is is non-invasive Ex- unless you're an oil filter then it's very invasive but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but those are those are the two probably most important the filter tells you what's going on, on the bottom end and the spark and the uh, borescope tells you what's going on, on the top end you've got an awesome airplane too yeah and the engine monitor that's a great choice i'm just about to get my cardinal back and it's got a 930 that got installed and i'm excited so I'm joining the ranks of the modern engine monitors here. (laughs) Wonderful. I don't think I could ever go back. It was definitely a good investment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, thanks, Sarah. That was a great call. And and it's really fun to talk to a female pilot that's uh, interested in getting their hands dirty and and very knowledgeable about your airplane. Wait wait a minute. So I made a comment about purses and that's not okay, but... I don't don't know. Unless you like purses, Paul, but... (laughs) Yeah, Colleen's allowed to say those things. We're not supposed to say them. Yeah, it works that way. Yeah. Anyway, Sarah, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Sarah. Goodbye. Our next question is from Dale, who has an engine that's doing its best to embarrass him in front of everyone. So, Dale, let us know what you've got. Hey, I've got a uh, Cessna 185A with an IO470 that I put in factory rebuilt as a firewall forward in 2013. And the entire time I've owned the engine, it's had a tendency to die at idle, particularly when you're rolling out or landing, because that's when your throttle is all the way back and you're paying attention in a 185 to staying on the center line more than engine management at that point. And so I've had five different shops look at this, including my old seaplane operator that I flew with for years where very low-speed continental engine running is critical. If they don't consistently uh, idle at 500 RPM, we'd we'd write them up. And even they couldn't set it up. So had, you know, a little bit of air leak problems on the intake side, which seemed to help a little bit. But, you know, everybody's adjusted. Uh, whatever they're adjusting in the fuel system, and it's never been corrected. I've been thinking about taking it to Fairhope and seeing if they could do something with it. I'm just coming up on 500 hours, so we do mags and let them set all that up at one time. But uh, I thought I'd see what you guys thought. This is an IO520? IO470. I don't remember remember the 185s ever having an IO470. No. First two or three years, that was the stock engine on the 185. I have an A model, which is a 62. Right. I'll be going. So, uh, yeah, that's one reason I bought this airplane was I wanted that engine. Hmm. Uh, as, as a land plane, it's a great engine. I wouldn't want it on floats. It's too uh, finicky on a hot start. But uh, as a yeah. land plane engine with a seaplane prop, it's a locomotive. That is just amazing. I, I had, Well, I learned something today. I had to learn it on a podcast, so now everybody knows I didn't know that. But you know, it's it's okay. I can remember. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> but it's a but it's 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 a standard continental continuous flow fuel injection system. So it's correct. It'd be pretty much the same. Do any of these shops have a proper set of gauges and everything to to do the fuel system setup the way it's supposed to be done? I would presume so. I've been to a couple of pretty sophisticated shops with it. A couple of my local guys have had it. And then uh, one big shop in Atlanta that does everything up to turbines. And then, like I said, my old seaplane operator that's been operating 
185 since before they were invented. They go back to the mid-50s, so they're very familiar with the with the powertrain. And I thought they had it because for... Well, like, I mean, the reason I ask is because in, in my experience, not too many shops have, have the gauges and swivel tees and stuff required to do the fuel system setup properly. So you, you should probably find out whether they whether they did it correctly. There used to be a long service bulletin called SID 97-3, is that right? Yep, yeah, with some alphabet after it. Which I think has gone away now, and it's now part of the manual X0. But there's a long, complicated procedure for setting up the, the fuel system on those engines. And it requires some calibrated pressure gauges and to do it right. And not that many shops are, are equipped to do it right, my experience. Certainly, if you took it to Fairhope, they, they can set it up. It shouldn't be. Where, where are you located, Dale? I'm on the south side of Atlanta, Sonoya, Georgia. Oh, oh yeah. so, Fair, so Fairhope's not, not, Fairhope's a, not bad. a very long trip. So the, Hour and a half flight, yeah. Yeah, you know, that might be worth doing because those guys for sure know how to set it up correctly. It sounds very much like your uh, unmetered fuel pressure is set low. And also possibly your uh, idle mixture. Do you get about a 20 to 40 RPM rise when you shut the engine off with the idle? With the mixture? Yes. Okay, so that's probably okay. And that's but, been mentioned by various shops that they would they thought it was idle mixture, and that was one of the things they usually fool with. Yeah, but it's if you're getting that rise, the auto mixture's fine. It's going to be that unmetered pressure. The low-end fuel uh, pressure. The low-end fuel pressure, which should be set at your idle RPM, which will be specified in manual M-0. That's in, in yeah, Chapter 6. But it's usually pretty low pressure. It's usually like 8 PSI or, yeah, or, eight, even eight, or 8 or 10 PSI. Some of them are 5.5 to 6.5. Mm. Yeah, but it's a yeah, very I, low pressure. I don't pressure. know offhand on the IO-470 because we don't do too many of those. Yeah, but I rarely see those. But it's in, but it's in the book. And, yeah. uh, the other it thing seems that, like such a... An easy thing. I don't understand why this has been so hard for people to set up. I agree. It seems like I read the procedure and it looks very simple. So I I was really intrigued at the other things that you said some shocks suggested, like looking for leaks or anything that would make the mixture go lean. Well, you've got two things in my mind, vapor lock on rollout. And I don't know how common that is on this engine with this airframe combination, on a 210, it's fairly common. I see a lot of those, but that's a whole different ball of wax. The other would be if the flow divider on top was getting very stiff and it won't drop properly under the fuel pressures, and that can cause it to lose that fuel pressure or the fuel delivery to the nozzles. But that's kind of a stretch, I think. Has anyone done anything with the flow divider? Not that I'm aware of. Like uh-huh. I said, it came, you know, it came new out of out of Continental, so it should have been perfect when I got it. Well, should have been, but, you know, they're they're human, putting those things together as well, so there's always that possibility. But that's why the fuel pressure is so important, because if the fuel pressure drops below a certain threshold, then the sleeve valve and the flow divider is going to shut off because it's going to think you're shutting the engine down. And it, that's its job, is to shut the engine down. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of doubt it's a vapor lock problem, Paul, because, I mean, right. he's, 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 he, he's concerned about this, you know, happening on, like, on rollout after landing, and, and that's a time when the engine's been producing low power and getting lots of cooling air, and so, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like a, 
like a vapor lock scenario. To me. It, it shouldn't. I don't know how the exhaust is run on this engine. Of course, there's not much airflow back there where the uh, fuel pump is. So it can actually get pretty warm as the airplane slows down. You don't get a lot of flow. I would ask next time uh, you have someone do some adjustments on the engine, ask them to record their final values in the logbook entry. That's how you know what they did. If they actually did it. <laughs> if they actually did it. That's that's what I recommend strongly. But, you know, if Fairhope's only an hour and a half flight, yep. uh, that that might be a, a quick way to get to get the thing set up. Like yeah. I said, I'm coming up on 500 hours to so let them really do a nice setup on everything. And I'm yeah. thinking about changing over to Surefly and then they could set all that up <laughs> together so that it everything operates together. Sounds like a plan. Sounds good. Fairhope will probably disown it if you put a sure fly <laughs> on it, right? It might. <laughs> don't don't use the advanced timing yet. It's not under yeah. war- it's not under warranty. Yeah. Uh oh. Well, the Continental guys gave me a hint that they were coming up with some system about a year and a half ago, and they said, "Oh, don't do the you know aftermarket mm-hmm. systems yet." Wink, wink. And but I've never <laughs> seen anything come out of Continental yet. <laughs> yeah. It, it will have everything next year. That's that's what the the normal response is, especially at Oshkosh. Next year we're going to be a, we're going to be announcing FAA certification. Well, I'm going back into a uh, the big local shop that just did a major avionics upgrade for me for a little tweaking, and I'll bring up these notes to them because they've also set this up unsuccessfully and see what they say about it. The shop owner's a good friend of mine, so he'll work with me on that. But, and be sure all those adjustments need to be made to a thoroughly warmed up engine. Best if they do it right after the engine has flown. Ground runs just don't quite get it there. I'll bet that's not been done, would be my guess. Give that a shot. Because usually they don't fly this airplane unless I'm flying it. But on that fuel pressure adjustment, you have to plumb an external gauge in. You can't right. do it based on, on cockpit instrumentation. You, you, can, you can adjust the, the takeoff stuff with cockpit instrumentation if you have to, but the idle, the, the, the idle uh, stuff requires an external gauge. There's nothing in the cockpit that helps adjust that. Yeah, I wouldn't trust that at all. Very cool. Dale, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Good all question. Right. Thank you. Hopefully that'll work out for you. Thank you for your help. Take care. So our next question comes from Brian, who's got a Continental, and he wants to make sure that he's getting all the power he paid for. So what do you got there, Brian? Well, first of all, let me thank you guys for for having me as a guest on the podcast. I've been with you guys since the get-go, and uh, I really enjoy it, and uh, and I appreciate you all for hosting this. It's, it's, it's invaluable to owner-operators like me. But here's my question. How can I know that my engine is wearing out and not making the power that it once originally did? If my engine is making book static RPM, isn't it still making full power? And then the second part of my question is if if that's true, do you guys have any idea on how I might adjust the expected static RPM to match the ambient conditions. Now, here's my reasoning for the question is that time and time again, I read articles about uh, actual aircraft takeoff performance not meeting or falling short of the book values and the need to apply safety factors and safety margins uh, accordingly. 
one explanation is that's always offered is, well, your airplane's old, your engine's old, and it's just not making the power it did when it was new and, and the original values were determined. The second one is that, well, your skills as a pilot aren't anywhere near the skills of the test pilot that was used to determine those factors. And I get that one, and I just from that alone, I apply <laughs> safety margins in my flight planning uh, to accommodate that. But again, if my airplane is making the book static RPM, isn't it making full power? In a word, yes. Absolutely, yes. And and just for the record, engines don't make less power as they get older. That is just a total myth. That's that's Some flight instructor probably told you that, right? You can never <laughs> trust those guys. <laughs> Wait, Mike, aren't you a flight instructor? I am absolutely yeah. <laughs> a flight instructor. <laughs> no, actually, I think that came off some ASI stuff. And there was a – anyway, there have, yeah. been, there have been several either video articles or written articles regarding that. No, I mean, your, your, your comment about the fact that the, that the numbers were, were created based on what a trained test pilot did are, are valid – and most of us aren't capable of getting quite that good performance out of the airplane as a, as a test pilot is. But the engines don't get weak as they get older. And certainly if your engine is making the static RPM that it's supposed to make, it's, that's a, pretty close to a, a dynamometer test. <laughs> and it's, you don't have to worry about that. I mean, Continental did some really interesting testing down in Mobile years ago on their dynamometer where they intentionally reduce the compression of, of an engine down to something very low, you know, 40 over 80 compression on all cylinders. And it didn't make any, any difference whatsoever on the dyno. There was just no measurable loss of power. Good. So Brian's question, though, specifically is rated power is stated at standard temperature and pressure and I actually did some looking uh, through my POH and online, and the only place I saw where it was recognized that you have to uh, allow for variations in static RPM to non-standard temperatures was in the Skycatcher maintenance manual, which was kind of odd. I didn't find it in any other. It said, the Skycatcher POH says, for non-standard conditions, refer to the 162 maintenance manual. So... I didn't have a 162 maintenance manual lying around, so I'm not really sure what their recommendations are. But it, it's generally just overlooked. I guess close is good enough in, in this case. Yeah, probably. There's a range. Well, if I look yeah. in uh, the owner's manual, uh, for my, it's, I have a 1959 172 with the 0300A in it, and there's a in the in the owner's manual, there's a there's a comment in there. It says a full throttle RPM check is recommended only when condition of engine is in doubt. Now I normally go back to the <laughs> hangar in that case, but it says <laughs> it says the engine should run smoothly and turn with carburetor heat off 2260 to 2360. Now it doesn't state it, but like Corrine says, I presume that that's given at standard atmospheric conditions. So. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be at sea level, standard day at sea level. Yeah, and I've, I've looked and looked, and I can't find any. I've looked in the operating manual for the engine, and there's nothing in there that, that mm. helps me there. Normally, when I, I, I rarely ever sit brakes held full throttle on a takeoff, but typically when I do take off, I've got 
I've got the engines running as fast as it's going to run by the time I don't have any airspeed yet, but it's, you know, well below 20 or 30. And I'm getting the 2250, 2260, something like that on a mm-hmm. typical average day. So I'm comfortable. It's smooth. So I go. Well, a full power test on it, especially on an engine with a fixed pitch propeller like you have, is a pretty common thing to do going into an annual inspection. It's one of the few ways that maintenance has of determining if the engine is doing something like it's supposed to do because we seldom ask the pilot, is the engine making full power? Because we think, well, how's he going to know? So a ground run is was a prerequisite to an annual. And going full throttle on the ground with cowling on and all that is a very common standard thing to do. The engine doesn't mind it at all. You're not sitting there for 15 minutes. This is a 10 to 15 second event. And the cylinders just barely even start warming up at that point. So uh, yeah, doing the ground run and you know the parameters. So doing that once in a while yourself is not a bad thing to do at all. I hate to see you say it's a pretty common thing to do at annual because I think it's a required thing to do at annual. It's on my checklist. Yeah, yeah it's, it's on the checklist. It's on Cessna's checklist. So it, well, it it's, should it's, be done. It, but it's in the regulation. I yeah. don't care what's right, on Cessna's right. checklist because yeah, you don't have to do that. So. But 4315 <laughs> requires that you do, do that. It's often not done. A full power run is, is often not done. Now, I'm not saying that it, it – I'm just telling you the reality – Oftentimes, the planes will come in, maintenance will say, is it okay? It's okay. Then we won't bother bother with a full throttle run. But especially on a fixed pitch prop engine, that is, that is your primary way to find out. On constant speed prop engines, 550s, you know, big engines like that, we have manifold pressure, fuel flow, RPM. We have all these parameters that we can look at that gives us a, a better feel. So even though we do the ground run, to make sure we're getting some power, we're not really paying attention to all those little bitty details. It's, it's a little different uh, feel when we do it. It's a lot more violent, too. <laughs> well, I primarily look for changes. You know, I'm looking for sure. consistency. So every time I take off, if that that RPM is about where I expect it, where it was last time, mm-hmm. I'm not too concerned and worried about it. So, but yeah. thank you. Brian, thanks for the question. Wait, we thanks a lot. It. And I really appreciate you not giving me a hard time for not having an engine monitor on my 59-year-old. <laughs> no, we did that already to somebody yeah, else. I watched the last podcast, so I was yeah, expecting you, 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 be, you don't want to be the first one on the show because we always do yeah, that. Yeah, we so. always pick on somebody. <laughs> Good placement then. All right. Yeah. Okay, take care. All right, bye-bye. See you, Brian. All right, our next question is from Ike who drank the Kool-Aid on engine monitors, and uh, but he's read some fine print. It's got him a little confused. What you got for us, Ike? Well, that's absolutely the truth. I'm easily confused, so uh, this is uh, something that I need to square away. You're going to fit right in here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, essentially, as I, as I wrote in, the um, installation manual on the EDM 830 that I installed uh, says that the uh, so a spark plug sensor, which I had to use because I didn't have uh, cylinders that had the pre-drilled port for the bayonet sensors, would potentially read as much as 25 degrees higher or lower than the non-existent the ones I didn't have, the factory installed uh, uh, bayonet probe. Then you go in looking a little bit further into the um, 
and to the pilot's guide that was a you know separate document that came with the with the engine monitor says that uh, the spark plug gasket sensor may read 20 to 50 degrees higher than a bayonet probe so now i'm looking at a at a spread of about 70 degrees here i don't really know where to set my engine warning limit is that was my primary concern so any, any guidance that uh, you could provide on that would be warmly received well, my first question was, did you mount those on the top spark plugs or the bottom spark plugs? The top spark plugs. Okay, so they'll they'll read cooler there. Okay. Yeah, most mo- most of the time they're mounted on the bottom end, so they read hotter. But if they're but but Paul's absolutely correct. If if they're on the top spark plugs, then they're going to read cooler than what the bayonet probe would would have said. They're in the cooling air. Is that? the issue? Yeah. Yeah. They're on top of the cylinder where the cool air hits the cylinder first, as opposed to underneath where the air that comes in, well, the bottom of the cylinder, <laughs> it's not really the bottom, is it? The underside <laughs> is is warmer than the top side. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the bottom as long as you're not in an unusual attitude. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but I always think of the top and the bottom relative when a cylinder is sitting on the desk and when yeah, it's in but, the airplane. But, norm, yeah. but normal people don't think of it that way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the documentation is confusing. It's um, self-inconsistent, which makes it even harder. Self-inconsistent. Is that a right? Is that the I like that. <laughs> it's a self-inflicted inconsistency. So, Thank so you. <laughs> so the, bot- the bottom line is that if, you're, if your spark plug sensors are on the top spark plugs and, so that your CHT is going to, be reading cooler than our normal reference numbers, your CHT targets should be lower. I see. Uh, so this is a continental engine. We normally say keep CHTs below 400 and 380 is like ideal, but you might want to drop those numbers by 20 degrees. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I've noticed on, uh, I've only got about five hours on a flight time with the engine monitor installed so far. And I've noticed that on takeoff, my uh, number four cylinder is dramatically by a number of about 50 or 50, 60 degrees higher than the other three cylinders for some reason. And just as an aside, that cylinder happens to be a the one cylinder that's been replaced on the engine since it was new. Uh, and it's a millennium cylinder, mm-hmm. uh, which did have the pre-drilled port. But since I didn't have them on the other four cylinders, I didn't see any reason to, you know, get one bayonet port and yeah. three gas, spark plug gasket sensors. So I, I put them all in as, as, uh, as spark plug gaskets. Yeah, we, we, we tend to see the millenniums run a little bit hotter than the factory cylinders. Not dramatically, but a little bit. So, well, I guess I won't feel too bad about that. But to, to answer my primary question, you're saying that I should set the, the cylinder head monitor, the cylinder head temperature uh, alarm limit at 400 or 380 or? Well, if you set it, I think normally for Continental, we would say 380. But in your case, it's the alarm's going to go off every time you take off and it's going to, you're probably going to quit listening to it. Yeah. I might suggest setting it no higher than 400 just as a as a warning, I think that might be a good number to pick. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think four hundred is a reasonable alarm limit for a normal continental installation because if you said that three eighty is going to be going off all the time, and for yours because of the top spark plug gasket probes, I, you know I would like to see it set a little bit lower. But you say you've got this one cylinder that's running kind of hot, so 
check the baffling. Make sure that it's getting enough cooling air. Maybe that'll bring it down to something closer to the other cylinders, and you'll be able to set the alarm a little bit lower. You definitely don't want, if you set the alarm to where it's going off all the time, then, then you just start tuning the darn thing out, and <laughs> then it loses its value. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, we appreciate the calls. Great to have you on. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, sir. And yeah, y'all have a great day. Thanks again. All right. You too. Take care. So our next question is from Walter, who's starting to think outside the box uh, that his instructor put him in. Walter, welcome to the show. What do you got for us? Well, starting back in aviation after a long layoff and, and, and being in general aviation, uh, the mag check always uh, got to me as it seems like it, it was something that you uh, want to find out if the engine is working correctly. And if it's not, you're going to not fly that day. But we don't do it until we're at the end of the runway and probably in line with other planes behind us. And now the pressure is on us to get on the runway and get out of there. I was thinking, and I know I don't want to run the airplane up around any crowd of people or anywhere in uh, in vicinity of other airplanes. But is there a reason that we wait until the airplane's been running for a while or wait until the end of the runway? If there was somewhere where we could do it safely, uh, very soon after start, why wouldn't we want to go ahead and do it then? Of all the questions to ask about a mag check, I've never heard this one before. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll just start off. The only reason that I can think of at the moment, other than who's around you kind of thing, it is kind of nice to let the engine, the oil warm up a little bit before you start adding a lot of power, even though 1800 is minimal power. I mean, you're talking... 30, 35% power. So it's not much, but, you know, give it a chance to get the oil flowing. And other than that, I don't see a reason not to do a check earlier on before you get into the traffic out on the taxiway. That's never a problem at my airport, but you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're, if you're number 12 in line and there's 10 behind you, that, that could be a thing for mm -hmm. sure. What kind of airplane are we talking about? Well, various ones are uh, 172s. Now we're switching to an SR20. But I, I guess the whole idea was, is I like to know if this thing's a go, uh, if everything's operating as soon as I can. Um, I know with the, the new engine uh, instruments that we have, especially things like uh, cylinder head temperature and stuff, it, it would seem that we wouldn't have to run the airplane RPM up very high to check the mags and uh, have an indication of whether they're working uh, very well or not. So uh, I just thought it might be... Uh, it more efficient to to learn of the problem early and be able to shut down and get it fixed or plan for another day uh, before you taxi around. Now, I understand the engine oil and, and warming up the engine, but uh, down here in the south, uh, the engine's pretty warm most of the time. <laughs> well, you can do a mag check at any time. You can do yeah. it at idle. If you only have one spark plug that's not running, it may not be, it may not present itself in a very dramatic fashion. Uh, but certainly you can do a mag check at idle. You can do it at a thousand RPM. Doesn't hurt a thing. Yeah, I'm, I, I do that. If I'm in a big hurry uh, in my 310, I'll, I'll do the, the mag check during the taxi at, at just taxi power. The, the reason I asked you what kind of aircraft uh, is because this is not formally part of the mag check, but part of the normal run up if you have a controllable pitch prop. 
is to cycle a propeller in order to get warm oil in the in, up in the hub so that the prop will regulate properly on takeoff. And of course, you need warm oil to do that. Uh, so that's the one part of the usual run-up routine that that it would probably be be good to to wait until the oil is warm. But the ignit when you do the ignition system check, it doesn't really care whether the engine is warm or not. Well, I was going to ask also since we're doing, and my concern was the ignition uh, with the magic with the with the uh, cylinder head temperatures that that I'm now able to read with the, with the great gauges that I have. Uh, would that indicate a problem immediately in a mag check? No. no, no. You're measuring the temperature of a mass of aluminum, and its temperature changes very slowly. You're also running at low power, and the fact, like in the SR20, the fact that these engines idle at all is is a miracle. It's totally unexplainable because they have fixed timing, and you know they they really shouldn't run at idle, but somehow they they do. I don't know. Yeah, so CHT is not going to be very indicative, at least early on. Uh, EGT will tell you if you don't have a cylinder that's performing like a stuck valve, maybe you, you'll see a dropout in EGT. Okay. All right. One more thing that's worth mentioning if we're talking about mag checks is that the, the mag check that you do pre-flight is not a very uh, sensitive test. It will, it will only detect the, the, the grossest ignition system problems. So it's really a good idea on a regular basis to do an in-flight mag check with the with the engine running at at cruise power, preferably with a nice lean mixture, because that's a much more demanding uh, test. The, the like I say, the the one we do on the ground, it, it it'll it'll only really detect if you've if you've got a completely non-firing plug or something like that, but it it, it won't detect subtle problems. You know, like a spark plug whose gap is 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 gotten too large or cracked insulator or something like that. But an in-flight mag check uh, will will detect fairly subtle things. So it's it's a good idea to do those on a regular basis. Well, Mike, when you're doing an in-flight check, what are you looking for as far as an RPM drop or anything? Are you looking for the same type of indication? No, you uh, really what you're looking at is uh, when you do it is two things. One is EGT. That all the cylinders should rise 50, 100 RPM, uh, I mean, 50 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit uh, when you go to single mag operation. All the bars should rise, none of them should fall. And the other thing you're looking for is that the, the, the engine doesn't run unacceptably rough. Engine will always run a little bit rougher on single mag operation, but it shouldn't run a lot rougher. Okay. Basically, the exact same things you should be looking for when you do a ground check. If you do a mag check on the ground and all the EGTs go up, you're pretty much guaranteed that the RPM drop is acceptable. The shake that you get when one spark plug is not running is, what, 250, 300 RPM. So used to when we didn't have engine monitors, that's all we had was the, the right. RPM drop. Right. Well, now that we have engine monitors... You know, the RPM drop is like secondary. That is not your primary indicator. Yeah. Your primary indicator are the EGTs. Yeah, my instructor always taught me to watch the RPM. This is before I had an engine monitor. And it's really difficult for me to move my eyes away from the RPM and watch the engine monitor. But that is your primary instrument during the, the mag check. And what I do is I listen 
with my butt <laughs> and my ears for the RPM, but I watch the EGTs when I'm doing that check. Yep, absolutely. And of course, in, in the air, you, you can't really use RPM drop. In fact, if it's a constant speed prop, you won't get any RPM drop because the... Prop you hope not. Good point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, excellent sure. question, Walter. Thank you very much. Sure. All right, enjoy. Take care. All right, our next question comes from Rick, who has an unruly governor. Go ahead, Rick. Hi, I've got a, an RV6A um, that we fly out of uh, Longmont, Colorado, and we bought it in March of 2018. Um, I did not build the airplane. I like to fly them more than build them. Ever since we've had the airplane, it hasn't held RPM well at, at any point in the flight. So when we take off at the beginning, as we're as the engine's coming up to operating temperature, I'll set typically 2150 in the RPM and cruise, and and over the next five minutes it'll creep up two or two to three hundred RPM. Yeah. Now after it does that, and I set it back, it stays relatively stable in cruise plus or minus 100 RPM. But as soon as I climb or descend, all bets are off. It starts not holding RPM again. So uh, we called the prop shop up and they said, governor and the prop were all documented to spec, fly the airplane. Um, So we did for several years. And at this last annual, we decided to do some troubleshooting and um, complied with the Lycoming Service Inspection Instruction 1462A, which is supposed to detect whether you've got a leak after the governor, as I understand it. And when we did that, the oil pressure at the port, uh, the governor port, was 10 PSI higher than our gauge indicator. It was 90 PSI at 1,000 RPM. So looks like we were getting good oil pressure there. And the leak down part of the test, at 40 PSI in, we got 9 PSI out, which is in the acceptable range for Lycoming. At the same time, we pulled the governor and put one of our buddies, known good Woodward governors, on the airplane, and it did the same thing as our governor. It didn't hold RPM. So the question that we've got is, it's kind of annoying, but the airplane flies fine. Is this dangerous? Can we keep flying it? If not, uh, what should we do? And if so, what should we be looking for, Mike, and your philosophy of um, monitoring things? And if they start going south, you do something. Well, let me ask you a question. With this governing problem, do you have a a potential problem with RPM overspeed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because and that's the, because that one of the that's the only crazy. thing that would be really re- worrisome because the engines are not tolerant of overspeed, and uh, an overspeed condition can cause pretty serious problems like valve strikes and so on. So, if the prop is not will not reliably limit you to RPM redline, then I think you probably have to do something about it. So this this may be me not understanding how the constant speed prop system is supposed to work. So the place that, that I run into potential overspeed issues is um, I like to come fast into the airfield and then start pushing the prop governor forward to slow down to get into the traffic pattern. And as I push the governor, the control in, I can easily overspeed the, the, the engine. That sounds like a bad thing. So let, let, let me ask you a question because 
you've done a lot of stuff. You've tried another governor. You've obviously ruled out the governor. The the prop shop just I ran your prop and thinks your prop's okay. The the one thing I didn't hear any mention of is checking the position of the uh, plug inside the crankshaft. Yeah, and we don't uh, know how to do that. There's a, a spec on exactly how far in that plug should be. You, you take off the prop and then you can stick a tape measure or something in and me- measure the depth of the plug. Paul, do you remember the details? I, I don't there? remember the details. But uh, I, I've, I've seen cases where that plug either got loose and, and, and moved or wasn't installed quite correctly in the first place. And it, you know, seriously interfered with, uh, with, with governing. Oh, and, and that's, that's a problem that you can fix without taking the engine out of the airplane or anything like that. Yeah. I would, I, I would certainly suggest get your hands on the overhaul manual and it will, it will provide instructions for how, how that plug is supposed to go in and then measure it and see if it's in the right place. Well, thank you. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, we look forward to hearing how this works out, Rick. Yeah. Well, we'll pull the prop and check the check the uh, the plug. And Mike, you're, you're suggesting that we check the depth and go against the overhaul manual. I didn't see any other tests, although anecdotally, I've heard you can run a smoke test, put pressurized smoke up to 25 PSI into the crankcase and look to see if it goes past the plug. Is, well, that's is, not what that, you're looking for, but... Okay. I, I would contact Lycoming oh, and say, that, this is what yeah. I've got. See, that that would test for the for a, for the plug being leaky, which I suppose is a possibility. Okay. But what I'm talking about is the plug just not being in the right position in, inside the bore. Restricting if, flow as opposed to leaking. if it was too far forward, then it might be over the... Exactly. The hole. Yeah. Partially the obstruct the, the, the hole. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll look for that. I'm going to vote for that. Yep. Thanks. Hey, let us know how it comes out, will you? Yeah. <laughs> I I hate mystery stories without a punchline, you know. I just Okay. All right, good good luck with that. All right. Bye bye. We'll see you. Thanks, Rick. Bye. Well, that's a wrap for us. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we would love your feedback. Send us your ideas on what you'd like to hear. Questions and comments can come to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and don't forget to have fun and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody. Bye.